If you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, I would ask you to find the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. Begin reading in verse 13, and we'll read all the way down through verse 48. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. And for about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it also is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But when he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who, is belie- who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now. By the Spirit to hear this word and to make its truth sweet to us. Give us ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to do as we've been doing and read together this article of confession. Uh, I think we're going to have it up here on the screen in just a second. Let me just read it to you. It says, we believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which He graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. Election is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and includes all the means necessary to accomplish God's saving purposes. It is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. Election utterly excludes boasting. It promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, and trust in God, as well as mercy towards others. This grace encourages the greatest possible exercise of human responsibility. 
election to salvation is confirmed by its effects in everyone who truly believes the gospel. And this grace is the foundation of Christian assurance. And confirming our election deserves our greatest diligence. I have to tell you that as I was been working with the elders, as we were looking at, at confessions of faith, as we were working through this, this article, this doctrine of election, perhaps warms my heart more than any of the others in this confession. It, it may be my favorite doctrine in this confession. Now, it wasn't always that way. As I grew up in church as a child and even into high school, I was one of the guys who thought that doctrine of election was from the devil. I was one of the guys who knew all of the arguments about all of the problems, about all of the stereotypes and caricatures of, of those who I thought were, were evil Calvinists. And then I went to seminary. And the professors that I had at Southern Seminary weren't evil men, as I might have thought. They didn't even argue for the doctrine of election. Instead, what I found them doing was not trying to advocate or, or, or prove this doctrine, but they delighted in this doctrine. It wasn't something that they fought for, but it was something that they fought from. And, and, and I found myself encouraged by the doctrine of election. Now, I know that in many churches and among many Christians, the, the doctrine of election has a, a mystery to it, especially in our culture. In fact, if you go to any number of evangelical Christian websites and you do a search for the word election, you're more likely to find articles on politics than on predestination. I think that's unfortunate. Because I think the Bible has far more to say about the doctrine of election than it does about political office. Now some might say that the reason for that is because there's such a great deal of controversy wrapped up in that doctrine of election. But you know, I don't actually believe that. See, it was pointed out to me a long time ago that there are so many churches that are testifying to the doctrine of election every week. Now, not everyone may agree on what this looks like and how the mechanics of it fit with other things that we know to be true about God. But when a congregation comes together and sings, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because He first loved me, that's the doctrine of election. And when they come together and they sing, He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood, that's the doctrine of election. When someone shares their testimony and says, I can look back at my life and see how God was at work in every step of the way bringing me to a, a, an understanding of, of His plan for my life and His salvation that I so needed, that is the doctrine of election. 
When we pray for lost people, we are assuming a doctrine of election. So on one hand, I think there's actually more consensus on the matter than we realize. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that the doctrine of election is nearly controversial, nearly provocative enough for us who actually believe in this doctrine of election. Far too many of us see the doctrine of election as an obstacle to overcome than an encouragement on which we stand. And yet, if we rightly understand election, we're provoked, we're encouraged, we are compelled to act. And that's what I want us to see in this morning in a text that is saturated with the doctrine of election. Acts 13.48 is easy to see. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And yet this doctrine runs all the way back from the beginning in verse 17 all the way through to verse 48 because what is being displayed is the the glorious means of salvation. And it both glorifies God and it grounds us. This passage reminds us that, that election isn't about mechanics or determinism, but it's about marvel and drive. This doctrine isn't merely to mystify us, but to motivate us. And here's what I want you to take away from this message this morning. That election encourages something in us, even as it accomplishes salvation for us. So how does the doctrine of election encourage us? Well, Paul begins to preach to this group of Jews and God-fearers. You'll hear him address them as men of Israel and you who fear God. He says that a couple of times, but he's preaching to them about election, something that he knows they already claim to believe. Israel had no trouble understanding that they were a people chosen by God. And even these God-fearers, these Gentiles, had come to believe that too. And they wanted to do nearly everything they could to be part of that group. But when Paul talks about it, he doesn't do it in cold, abstract terminology like you might find in some systematic theology. But it's, it's personal. It's pleading It's compassionate. It's a a desire for these people to see what big and broad things God is doing in the world. How the very same God who organized and arranged all of creation has organized and arranged all the means of salvation for His people. Now, one of the first objections that most people present when it comes to the doctrine of election is that they'll say that they're that it creates a God that hates. They'll say, if you believe in election, then that leaves you with the problem. Why God doesn't choose to save everyone. That may be true, except that denying election doesn't escape the issue. It simply ignores it. 
If someone says they don't believe in the doctrine of election, they're still faced with the dilemma why God does not save everyone. Now someone will say, well, well I believe that though God doesn't want us to be lost. Some are lost because they choose wrongly and God in His kindness and love will, will not violate their freedom of choice. Let me tell you, I try to honor my children's freedom of will, but if I see them riding their bicycle in the middle of a busy intersection, I'm going to get involved. It's kindness not to allow them to run to their own destruction. I will happily interrupt that freedom and even call that a kindness. And God's extravagant kindness is exactly what Paul is preaching about when he says in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm he led them out of it. Now, when Paul begins to talk with these folks about their fathers, in their mind, it always begins with Abraham. You ever think about what it was that made Abraham favorable in God's eyes? It wasn't his spiritual maturity. When God calls Abraham, he is a pagan living a pagan life in a pagan world. It wasn't his potential for good work. Abraham demonstrates over and over again his penchant for lies, deceit, shortcuts. God called Abraham because God loved Abraham. God, in his infinite wisdom and infinite justice and infinite kindness, chose the patriarchs, he willingly and kindly interrupted their freedom and the course of their lives, and it was a kindness. And the same thing with the Israelites in Egypt that Paul will talk about. It wasn't because they were particularly pious or because they had an incredibly intimate relationship with God. Take Moses, their leader, for example. God calls Moses, and Moses asks God... Who should I say is sending me? In other words, what's your name again? But in God's kindness, as Hosea reminds us, God calls them out of Egypt. And then the care that God demonstrates for them. I love how the ESV renders verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now some translations read, he carried them. Now I don't know if you've ever taken very small children to an amusement park. But for the first little while, they are running and they're walking and they've got all the energy in the world and they're grateful and they're in awe of the whole thing. The weather's pleasant. Everyone's happy. And then about 30 minutes in, there's a switch that's flipped. All of the energy and the strength and the enthusiasm are gone, and what you have is simply a limp noodle being dragged through a park. And you end up carrying them through the rest of the park and fighting the temptation to do what you'd like to do, and that's leave them by the Ferris wheel. 
but you know there's cameras. And yet, this is not how God works. God cares for these people even as He carries them. He continues to demonstrate how much He cares for them as He leads them into the promised land. And it relates to election this way. It is God who is doing this. Just look at the verbs. God chose them. God made Israel great. God led them. God put up with them. God gave them land, gave them judges, gave them kings. God is sovereignly and kindly working to make a people and save a people and sanctify a people, not because they deserve it, not because of their strength or their worth or their potential, but because He cares. That's what we read a few minutes ago. In Deuteronomy, God says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. You, in fact, were the dinkiest. And yet I loved you and put my love on you. Because He cares. From eternity past, God has set His love on His people. And this ought to humble us. We don't deserve glory or credit for the way that history has turned out, whether it's on a personal scale for us or a macro scale. None of these guys have anything to boast about. And neither do we. It is God's extravagant kindness. Far too often we think of ourselves too highly and God's dealings with us too harshly. I mean, do we talk about our personal history the way Paul preaches Israel's history? Do we give God the credit for what He's brought us to? What He's led us through? You know, Romans 8, 28 and 29 aren't just two obscure verses that are to be said through gritting teeth in the toughest of times. They're to be words of humility and praise. God's sovereign dealings with His people are to be seen as kindness. And if you see the, the doctrine of election to be some useless decree by a, made by a stowing, stoic, uncaring, disinterested God, you do not understand the doctrine of election. And no one that delights in the doctrine of election simply wakes up one morning with some stoic, unemotional, robotic, lockstep, fatalistic view and a fatalistic God. It's because they are overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness and God's saving of them. But the doctrine of election doesn't just humble us with the extravagant kindness of God. It accomplishes more. Notice secondly how it reveals to us the enduring promise of God. And we see that in verses 26 to 41. Now, in the minds of most of the Jewish people in Paul's audience, the climax of Israel's history had been the achievements of King David and his son, Solomon. But that is never the way God had intended history to go. God had always intended for David's greater son, Jesus, to inherit the throne, eclipse his father, but throughout all the exiles and the deportations... Despite the prophetic hopes that had been proclaimed, most of the Jews had lost hope. 
and God's Messiah. And Paul says as much in verse 27. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Now think about what he's just said. He's saying that those who had read the scriptures every week had missed a point. They missed that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, a boy from backwater town who hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors, that he was the one that they were to be looking for. And what did they do to him? They execute him. They see to it that he is, he is executed. And probably every Jewish leader went home that day after seeing him crucified and thinking to themselves they had done the work of God. That they had hung a blasphemer, a reviler, an insurrectionist, but they missed the promise. They, they missed the prophecy, but the promise didn't miss them. They had done the work of God. But it wasn't how they thought. And don't get me wrong, each of them would be held responsible for their guilt in crucifying Jesus. But none of that caught God off guard. It's not as though it derailed the promise. As God planned out salvation, He made this promise. And it included using ignorant Jewish leaders and unwitting Roman governors to demonstrate the power of that promise. It was a promise that would endure enemies. It was a promise that would endure death. You know, as I read uh, Paul's sermon here, I I wonder about how this would have gone. I mean, surely what we have is just kind of the Cliff Notes version of that message. But I wonder if as Paul is preaching, is he laying out and leaning into the guilt that they would collectively have, have felt? Did he do so in such a way that it, it sucked all the, the room out of the air, that everyone's tension was, was palpable, and he building up the despondency and the loss that linked them to the cross? And, and when you could cut the tension with a knife, he says, but God raised him from the dead. God kept his promise. Three times, he says, God raised him from the dead. This is a a promise. It is a plan that would would survive enemies, that it would, would survive death. And he lays it out before them. Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and to everyone who believes is freed from everything with which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Don't miss the fact that while Paul has full confidence that verse 48 is true, that God will save those whom He has appointed to eternal life, an appointment that has happened before the, the, the foundations of the world, it does not stop him from calling them to believe in Jesus. Paul understands election better than anyone, 
and recognizes that salvation, even with election, it still demands repentance and faith. Everyone who believes in Christ, (coughs) who trusts in Him as Lord and Savior, is now justified with Him. This is a promise that endures. It is is accomplished through the work of evil men. It overcomes death. It is extended to everyone who believes. And yet so many people have difficulty with this because they assume that what the doctrine of election is about is casting doubt on whether or not you belong to God. They think What that means is there's going to be a day someday that someone is going to stand at the judgment and desperately long to enter the kingdom and that the words of the Father will be no. That's not what the Apostle is saying here. It's the very opposite. He says in verse 26, to us has been sent the message of salvation. God has extended the promise that is made to David. It is fulfilled by Jesus and is granted to you. That kingdom will be yours. If you are longing for Christ, if you believe in Christ, that promise is yours. There is no uncertainty that it's going to end. There is no disruption that can stand in its way. You must believe. You know, I think one of the the things that stood in my way as a teenager that hindered my spiritual growth more than anything else may have been a wrong understanding of the doctrine of election. See, every summer I would go to youth camp. And every summer there would be a a preacher who each night would, would, would... share the gospel. He would call people to repentance and faith. And and each year, I I thought that what I really needed was to muster up enough sincerity to to catalog all of the things that I had done and to re-offer myself to God, to rededicate my life to God. But the problem is I wasn't believing what was said here, that everyone who believes is freed from that which you could not be freed I couldn't be good enough. I couldn't catalog enough sins. I I couldn't muster up enough sincerity to free myself from the guilt that I had felt. What needed to be done was recognition. It isn't about how much I believe or how hard I work, but that by the grace of God, by His work in my life, by believing in Him, I was saved. I didn't need to live with such anxiety about my spiritual condition. I needed to trust that what God had planned would come to fruition. And I wonder about myself and even now, how many people who believe in the doctrine of election spend their lives with such anxiety and fretfulness. Why is it that so many people can pontificate the doctrine of election? They can even line up the order of decrees, and yet maybe even now they are in tumult. How am I going to pay the water bill next month? Why is everyone else getting married except me? Everyone else I know is having babies but me. 
You're wringing your hands and you're not seeing the kind of peace that comes from knowing that if God is beginning something in your life, that He has promised to see it through to completion. When it, when it turns out that sometimes the most mean-spirited, manipulative, fretful, or anxious people say they believe in the doctrine of election, it is clear that they do not understand the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is fundamentally about the enduring promise of God that ought to bring peace and encouragement to God's people. How can we claim to have any hope in the end that God has promised if we don't have confidence in the means that He has established? Last way that this text encourages us. It not only reminds us of the extravagant kindness of God, it reveals to us the enduring promise of God. The last thing I want you to see is it redirects us to the expanding mission of God. Now I want to be clear, this is a mission at odds with the world. Paul gets done preaching this sermon. The people are leaving. Everyone is begging him to stick around another week. And teach further. He's got a number of Jews and God-fearers that are kind of following him around. Well, the next week, the whole city shows up. Not just these that had heard him before, but everybody. And suddenly, Paul is in a fight. And there is a, a, a conflict here. We read in verse 45 that the Jews saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They're going to revile him. They can't handle a servant Messiah. They can't accept a humble Savior. They can't accept that, that this Jesus could free them. And Paul knows what's going to happen. It's happened in every place he's gone so far. It's going to continue to happen. And again, what we see is that he understands the doctrine of election. That it's actually encouraging him to evangelize. Despite the opposition, these people that he's preaching to, that he's pleading with, that he has spent all this time unpacking the redemptive history that they ought to be so well acquainted with, he's doing this so that they could hear of Jesus. And yet he knows there are some who will not respond. But make no mistake. This is and will be a mission accomplished. Paul will say later in Romans chapter 9, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. See, if you understand the doctrine of election, then you understand there is not a kind of person who is likely to receive the gospel. I mean, Paul will address this in early parts of Romans in chapter 1. That he says the Gentiles aren't going to like it. Chapter 2, the Gentiles and Jews, they won't like it. Chapter 3, the Jews, they definitely don't like it. None of us are the type of people that are likely to believe the gospel. And yet, what happens? Paul's preaching election again. You have demonstrated yourselves, he says, unworthy of eternal life, so we are turning to the Gentiles. But that's been part of God's plan from the beginning. The Lord commanded us, he says, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation 
to the ends of the earth. The expanding kingdom of God is fundamental to the doctrine of election. Part of the means that God has established to see His glory fill the earth like water fills the seas, part of the means of seeing His name praised from the lips of men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation means taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And we read in verse 48, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. That's why we don't do demographic tests to see who's most likely to be saved. Because apart from God, no one will be saved. The power of God comes through the gospel that those who were previously were not the children of God are now called the sons and daughters of the living God. Verse 48 is not about keeping people out of the kingdom. These words, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed is a missionary text. It says, yes, you may not see many people turning and responding to the gospel, but guess what? God's power goes forward just as it did with Paul and Barnabas. God is doing with Paul and Barnabas, making them a light for the Gentiles. He's making us to a light for the world that salvation would go to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Some of us are scared to share the gospel with people because we think we've said all there is to say. Or maybe we're afraid to share the gospel in certain areas because we're afraid of the people we may run into. Or maybe we think that the doctrine of election somehow frees us from the command to share the gospel. But do you understand, if you consider yourself a theologian who, who, who thinks that the doctrine of election frees you from doing evangelism, that it does not re re expect you to respond by proclaiming the gospel that you can sit on your laurels and talk about that doctrine all you want to but you are a Pelagian Acts 13 tells us that the power of God is effective it's not their sales pitch that brings salvation to these Gentiles it was God it wasn't merely the free will of these folks to decide that they wanted to follow Jesus. It was the power of God. God's Word does not fail. God's Word goes forward. It brings order out of chaos. It brings life out of death. And it brings joy to those who receive it. To those who proclaim it. Even to those who are persecuted for it. See, if you are not more evangelistic now that you understand the doctrine of election than before you understood or, or claim to hold the doctrine of election, then you never understood the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election ought to make us more evangelistic because we have confidence that God's Word will bring fruit. I mean, without it, what hope is there that anyone would believe? Now, there will always be some people who don't like this 
doctrine. But that's true about a lot of doctrines. You'll always have people oppose you. But the question is, what are they charging you with? Let them charge you with the same thing these Jews were charging Paul and Barnabas with. If election is the plan of God for salvation to the ends of the earth, and if you are endowed with the Spirit of God, let them criticize you for the same reasons they criticized them. And they didn't criticize Jesus for being cold or calculating or fatalistic or joyless or angry. They criticized Him for preaching the gospel, for spreading the Word of God, for trusting in an extravagant kindness and endurance of God's promise. And the world never criticizes us for our doctrine until they can see our mission. Let me bring things to a close this way. Think about what your doctrine of election does for you. Does it shake you out of your evangelistic apathy? Does it satisfy you like a soft blanket with the assurance of God's faithfulness? Does it compel you to humble yourself in the face of God's kindness? If it doesn't, then maybe what you're believing in isn't the doctrine of election. But if it does, if it promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God as well as mercy towards others, just as our confession says, then that is a doctrine worth delighting in, standing on, and serving from. Be encouraged by what the doctrine of election accomplishes, both in eternity and in your own heart. You pray with me.